I want to thank the uh, worship team for the thoughtful selections and for leading us into the uh, the presence of God today in our chapel time. Uh, I also want to uh, give a special uh, welcome to some special guests, uh, the ministry staff and church staff from Grace Community Church at Riverton, where I worship and teach on Wednesday nights, is here giving me support today. So I just appreciate that. Make them feel welcome, would you? Thank you. I want to invite you to wait with John Blanchard as he is anxiously waiting at Grand Central Station, closely watching the crowd of people who are making their way through. Because he's looking for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face he had never seen. He's looking for the girl with the red rose pinned to her jacket and who's carrying a very special book. It all started 13 months before. John went to a library in Florida and he checked out a book. And the book was okay, but what he was really was intrigued by were the comments that were written in the margins. They were very insightful and, and, and curious, and he could tell by the, the delicate handwriting it had to be a woman's writing. And so he thought, I wonder if the previous owner's name is in the front of the book. And so he turned to the front, and sure enough, he found a name, Miss Hollis Maynell. So he did some investigating, and he found her address, and she lived in New York City. So he wrote her a letter introducing himself, telling how he had come upon her name, and he invited her to correspond with him. Well, the next day, he shipped overseas for service, uh, World War II. During the next year and one month, the two of them grew to know each other through the mail. See, that's uh, computer dating before technology, for those of you who don't understand that, okay? So a romance was budding. This is eHarmony without computers, all right? I know you guys got profiles on there, all right? Don't pretend you don't, all right? So Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused. She said, if you really care and you really like me, you're interested in me, it won't matter what I look like. And so John fulfilled his service and they sent him home. And, and so they finally scheduled their first meeting, 7 p.m., Grand Central Station in New York. And she says, you'll recognize me by the red rose that I'm going to be wearing on my lapel. And I'm going to be carrying a copy of the book. So here we are, 7 p.m. And he's looking for this girl whose heart he loved but whose face he had never seen. And as he's waiting, a beautiful blonde came towards him in this pale green suit, and she looked like springtime come alive. And he started towards her, and then he realized she wasn't wearing a rose. 
She wasn't carrying a book. But she caught his eye and with a very provocative smile and with a hand on a hip the way only women can do, you know. (laughs) He's just going my way, sailor. (laughs) He took one step towards her. And then he saw her. She was directly behind the lady in green, Miss Hollis Maynell. She was well into her 30s, already early graying hair tucked up under a worn hat. And it would be kind to say she was a little more than plump, (laughs) dressed kind of dowdily. And the girl in the green suit was, was starting to walk away. And he really wanted to go after that girl. But he had made a commitment to meet this woman that he had grown so close to just through her writing. So he walked up to her and he put forth his hand. And he said, I am Lieutenant John Blanchard. And you must be Miss Hollis Maynell. And it would be my privilege and honor to take you to dinner tonight. The woman's face broadened into a smile. And she says, well, I really don't know what this is all about, Sonny. (laughs) But the lady in the green dress that went just passed by us, she begged me to wear this rose and to carry this book. And she said that if you asked me out to dinner, that I should go and tell you that she's waiting for you at the restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of a test. I think we all understand why she put him to the test, right? And you obviously were glad that he passed the test. (laughs) But what if he had failed the test? Do you think she'd have been willing to give him a chance to develop a romantic relationship? We'll never know. But I do know this, Jesus will meet you where you are, and he won't put you through a test to determine your worthiness. He will meet you right where you are, warts and all. We're going to look at two different people that Jesus met them right where they were from the book of John. The first is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus meets Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You know, when you study the life of Jesus through the Gospels, for the most part, he is surrounded by ordinary people, the salt of the earth people. 
But here in John chapter 3, we see him in contact with one of the aristocrats of Jerusalem, a Pharisee. Now, you need to understand that from our standpoint on this side of the resurrection, looking back, we see the Pharisees as the guys who wore the black hat, all right? They were the mean, evil, legalistic, negative, you know, opposing Jesus people. But you have to go back to Jesus' time. And in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were considered the best people in the entire country. There were never more than 6,000 of them. They were known as the Brotherhood. And they entered into this Brotherhood by taking a pledge in front of three witnesses. And they pledged that they would spend their entire lives observing every single minute detail of the scribal law. Name Pharisee means the separated ones. See, they had separated themselves from ordinary life just to spend their entire life studying every detail of the law of scribes. Nicodemus was also one of the members of the ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. That would be the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. He was one of the elite, the intellectuals. These are the people who make up what we would call the upper crust. So Nicodemus sets up this meeting with Jesus at night. Now there are a lot of different theories put forth by different commentators as to why Nicodemus met with Jesus at night. Some give Nicodemus the benefit of the doubt. And they said that he really wanted just some quality one-on-one time with Jesus without all the crowds always kind of interrupting and, and, and detracting. Others point out that the typical time for a rabbi to study the law would have been at night. And a lot of people like to point out the allegorical relationship that kind of travels through the book of John, this interplay between light and darkness. And they talk about the darkness that was in the soul of Nicodemus and he needed the light of life. But my personal opinion, Nicodemus was simply afraid of what his peers would think if he was seen with this questionable Galilean. So he comes to Jesus in the cloak of darkness. I mean, after all, if the word got out that he'd be seen with Jesus, it could cost him, you know, his position, the ruling council, or maybe even in Jewish society. He was afraid of what other people might think. It's peer pressure at its worst. And it's not without good reason. I mean, later in John 12, 42, we read these words. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be... It's really a miracle of grace that Nicodemus could even overcome, you know, his his prejudice and his background and, and his fears to even meet with Jesus, even if it was at night. Jesus was not ignorant 
of this fact. But you'll notice in the text, he didn't chide Nicodemus or lecture him about being a coward or worrying more about what other people thought of him than Jesus did. He simply met him where he was, where he was comfortable in the safety of the darkness of night. And he just proceeded to tell him what he needed to hear. You need to be born again. Jesus will do the same for you. If you're afraid, afraid because you think you have sinned so badly that that Jesus could never forgive you, man, I just want you to know that there's nothing that you could have done, nothing that you are now doing even, that would keep Jesus from meeting you where you are. When I was your age, I was working in the uh, grocery store 40 hours a week to, uh, you know, pay bills. I had a wife and kids and, and I, I made friends with all the different salesmen that supplied the store. And one of them was a grandma's cookie salesman. He was a, an older, older gentleman, but uh, really a nice guy. And I got to be pretty good friends with him. And, and I found out as we were talking, he says, well, I know that you're, you know, studying to be a preacher, but I'm an agnostic. And, and I kind of have a lot of questions that I'd like to have answered. <laughs> you know, when you're in Bible college and taking apologetics and hermeneutics and all that, some agnostic says, I've got a lot of questions. I'd like to have the answer. <laughs> that's like Mark Scott says, that's saying sick him to a dog. All right, you know. Man, I was on that guy. Three months, and I had answered all his questions. And so I said, wow, are you ready to, to repent of your sins and invite Jesus into your life and be baptized and start a new life? He says, no, no. I went, whoa, I, I thought I answered all your questions. He said, yeah, you did. Well, well, what's stopping you? He says, you don't understand. You don't know about me. You don't know my life. I've done things God could never forgive. And he proceeded to tell me that when he, he was in World War II, and he got stationed over in Germany towards the very last, and he was on patrol, and he was tired, and he was hungry. And he came upon this young German soldier sitting on a log with his back to him. He says, that soldier couldn't have been more than about 17 years old. And he was sitting there and he was getting ready to open up a candy bar and eat it. And he says, and I took my pistol and I shot him in the back of the head because I wanted that candy bar. And I know that God could never forgive me for something like that. And I tried to tell him about Moses and about Saul who had, had been murderers and killed people but, and that God forgave them and used them. But he wouldn't hear it. He, he just couldn't accept it. And it wasn't that Jesus wouldn't meet this man right where he was. But he was just so overcome with shame and guilt That he wouldn't allow himself to meet Jesus. He didn't think he deserved the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus offered. Maybe in your honest moments you're like him. If so, I want to tell you about a very special OCC graduate. 
I just wished this grandma's cookie salesman could have met one of my favorite women ministry leaders, Miss Juliet Rose. I remember when she first came and introduced herself to me and part of her testimony, she says, you know, in my lifetime before I met Jesus, I broke all ten of the Ten Commandments. And she found herself in jail, busted for drugs. Her children were taken away from her, put in the DFS system. And she was facing 70 felony charges and she already had 12 of them on her record. But in that jail, she cried out to Jesus and she promised if she could just get out of jail and get her kids back, she would serve Jesus. She would leave her life of sin behind. Here's this lady with priors facing seven felony counts, a seemingly hopeless situation. But Jesus met Juliet in that jail cell. And he changed her life. And she now leads a recovery ministry, Guiding Light. And she's helped countless women get off of drugs and turn their lives around. Because Jesus met her where she was. And I'm so grateful for that. Jesus met Nicodemus. But he also met the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? See, his disciples had gone to town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would ask him and you'd be given living water. Quickest route from Judea to Galilee goes straight through Samaria. And it can be done three days using that route. But a proper Jew would take an alternate route. And he would cross over the Jordan, go up the eastern side of the river, and then once again cross over the river to avoid Samaria. But Jesus chose the shortcut. And I believe that Jesus chose this route by divine necessity, not because of geographical reasons. He had an appointment He needed to meet someone right where she was. Just short of the town of Sychar, the road in Samaria forks. And one branch goes northeast and the other one goes west. And just at the fork of the road, Jacob's well's located there. And so it's noon and Jesus is weary and thirsty from the trip. And so he sits down there, sends his disciples to, you know, bring some food and... To the well comes this Samaritan woman. 
Now, why she would come to the well is somewhat of a mystery because the town of Sychar has its own well, and it was a good well. This is a good half a mile outside of the city. Maybe she was so much of a moral outcast that even her own village women drove her away from the town well. And she had to come here to get water. Jewish tradition permitted three husbands. This woman had obviously long passed that more lenient rule. I'm reminded of a actress of the previous century, 20th century. Uh, I'm sure you guys have never heard of her, but her name was Zsa Zsa Gabor. And Zsa Zsa Gabor was once asked if she wasn't embarrassed to have been married nine times. And she replied, well, why should I be embarrassed about my marriages? Other women have had many more affairs. They're the ones who should be embarrassed. At least I marry my affairs. (laughs) Well, in John chapter 4, we encounter a woman very much like that actress. A woman who has gone through marriage after marriage in a fruitless search for love. In terms of her lifestyle... Her spiritual needs, her emotional pain. I think the woman in John 4 is just as contemporary and relevant as any American woman of the millennium. She could easily be the woman who's your barista at your favorite coffee joint. Maybe she's sitting next to you in the movies or in your life group. Maybe she's a relative of yours. She could even be you. The Samaritans need to understand in Jesus' time were considered unclean half-breeds by the Jews. They were the untouchables of the day. According to the Mishnah, quote, the daughters of the Samaritans are deemed as unclean as a menstruating woman from the day of their birth, unquote. That means to receive food or drink from the hand or a vessel of a Samaritan woman would be to share in that ritual impurity. So not only did Jesus encounter a Samaritan, but this is a woman. And in that day and age, that meant twice the cooties, all right? And again, quoting from the Mishnah, which reflects the opinions of the rabbis of that day, quote, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna, unquote. Jesus ignores all that. And he asks her for a drink. And she's totally shocked that this Jewish man would even speak to her, let alone drink water from her vessel. I mean, while she's not a prostitute, she still would have been considered sexually immoral by the Jews because she's living with a man who's not her husband. And this woman represents three oppressed groups in which Jesus made contact. She was a woman, a Samaritan, and sexually immoral. But I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 21, 31. I tell you the truth. The tax collectors 
and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. It's difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. I mean, you have the important, sophisticated Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews. You have this simple Samaritan woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He's a politician. She has no status whatsoever. He's a scholar. She's uneducated. He's highly moral. She's immoral. He had a name. She's nameless. He's a man. She's a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She who had no reputation came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking. The woman was sought by Jesus. Great contrast. And yet the point of both of these stories, and I believe that John did this on purpose. That's why, you know, three and four are placed where they are, is he's trying to get this point across that both... The man and the woman needed the gospel. And Jesus met both of them right where they were. See, Nicodemus is the example of the truth. Nobody can rise so high. Nobody is so moral or self-righteous to be above the need of salvation that Jesus Christ came to bring. And the woman's an example of the truth. No one could sink so low has to be left out or undeserving of the grace that Jesus brings. Samaritan woman was an ethnic nobody, domestic nobody, an immoral nobody, a spiritual nobody, and a social nobody. But despite of all her liabilities, she did have this one great thing going for her. Despite her reputation as a nobody... She had a positive encounter with a divine somebody. So a nobody who then told everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Text goes on to say that she ran and told the whole village. They all came out and listened to Jesus. And then in verses 3 and 9 and 40 it says, They urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. Now, the text doesn't say it. But where did Jesus stay those two days? I think the most likely place was at the woman's house. Now, I can't prove that through the text. But you can't prove he didn't through the text either. (laughs) I mean, here's this woman who had five husbands. She's just shacking up with a guy. Scandalous. But Jesus is willing to meet you right where you are. Jesus meets you where you are. But, much as I love the fact, God's willing to meet you right where you are. I think there's an inherent danger And acknowledging that fact. Because for some people that phrase means this. If God's willing to meet me where I am, then there's no need for me to change. 
Doesn't that kind of imply that anything goes in my life? See, meeting people where they are sounds nice, but is that really all that Jesus ever did? Didn't he rather call them away from where they were? And there's a healthy spiritual tension between who we are now and whom God calls us to be. Conversion, change of heart and life is essential. And Nicodemus would eventually risk everything to follow Jesus. But Jesus just had to take that first step and meet him where he was, both physically and spiritually. He told him what he needed to hear, that he had to be born again. No matter what you've done in the past, when God forgives you, your slate is wiped clean. Lord doesn't wait for you to clean up your act. Instead, he meets you right where you are and then he begins the process of change. We we call that sanctification. And that's what his grace does in your life. God knew all about you before he saved you. He knew all the things you've done and failed to do. But all of your past sins, no matter how vile Covered by the blood. Now Satan comes to remind us of our past. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. He loves to point out our sins of the past. Hoping to keep us from serving God in the present as we should. So if you're bound by guilt today. Remember you've been washed in the blood. In the eyes of God you stand absolutely innocent before him. Do not allow who you were keep you from being who you are meant to be. By the sanctification of Jesus Christ. And besides, when Satan wants to remind you of your past, you remind him of his future. Sean Connery was asked to play the part of 007. Seven of James Bond movies. Connery traveled the whole world to shoot movies, places as exotic as equatorial Africa or the Orient. And in 1989, he was proclaimed by People Magazine, the sexiest man alive. Oh, it gets better. 1999, he's voted the sexiest man of the century. Oh, man. And when he was asked why he continued to act and produce movies into his old age, here's what he said. Quote, because I get the opportunity... To be somebody better and more interesting than I am. Unquote. That's also why Jesus meets you where you are. So that he can help you become better than you are. To become the person that God has called you to be. So my benediction for you today. Is that which is known as St. Patrick's breastplate. And here's the prayer. Here's the benediction. Christ be with me. Christ in the front. Christ in the rear. 
Christ with me, Christ below me, Christ above me, Christ at my right hand, Christ at my left, Christ to comfort me and restore me, Christ in the quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Jesus is willing to meet you where you are. But he loves you too much to leave you there. So surrender your whole life to his transforming power. And you'll be glad you did. You're dismissed. Lord bless you.